Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Colin McCahey, who teaches with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board in Ontario, Canada, and uh, was a graduate student with Dr. Tim Fletcher, our other guest, who is an associate professor at Brock University in Canada. Uh, the paper we're discussing today uh, is titled Pre-Service Teachers Experiences of Learning to Teach LGBTQ Students in Health and Physical Education. And I'll link to the paper uh, in the article notes. But first, uh, welcome both uh, to the podcast. And I'd like to start with you, Colin. Um, when were you at Brock? Uh, first off, Aristo, thank you for allowing us to really speak about this as a paper. I think this is something that both Tim and I are very excited to be able to speak about and really disseminate the information that most people need to uh, understand. Uh, but first off, I went to Brock for the last seven years or so. So I actually started off uh, in the concurrent education degree and met Dr. Fletcher actually during that time as well. And then I decided to pursue my uh, MA and I kind of moved along uh, with uh, Dr. Fletcher. And uh, from now I'm in my uh, teaching uh, portfolio and kind of working towards that. But you never know if higher education's in the future. Well, sounds like it's a track to a PhD. That's just the, you know, the course I see in your future. But I don't know. I'm not a mind reader. Uh, but I, I love this article. I thought it was really interesting. I saw it on Twitter. It popped up right away. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting topic. And, you know, selfishly for me, I want to have this conversation also because it helps me then present this to our pre-service teachers here at Mason. So I think this is going to be a great resource. Um, so let's get into the article. Um can you begin by just telling us a little bit about the background leading up to the study? Like, why were you interested in this topic and how did the research project come about? Absolutely. So uh, one of the key things that I was very interested in was based on my personal experiences going through my uh, elementary and my secondary school experiences, especially as somebody that does identify as a part of the LGBTQ plus community. This was something that really stood out to me and I very much wanted to study even uh, during my uh, time in my undergraduate uh, career. There's a couple courses that really got my interest going, like there's a gender and sport class that was really quite interesting. And then Tim's class on reflective practice really got me to understand how to reflect and really kind of deconstruct the ideas that I had and how other teachers possibly thought of things as well. So uh, this research project, uh, again, came about from personal interest more than anything. Uh, I knew that this was something I wanted to always pursue and understand in a deeper level and then allow it to be disseminated to others. The key thing is, is I wanted people to see this, understand it, and then really add it to their pedagogical toolkit in a sense. Because for me, this was super important to get out there and excuse me, interest is much more personal. Mm -hmm. And I and I would agree it is really important to get out there. And so hopefully this will reach uh, a wider audience than just with the paper. And I'd like to start off with the first lines in your paper, um, lines that when I read them first reminded me of the homophobic classes that I went to school in, uh, the homophobic sports teams that I've been on before. And it took me a, a while, you know, 80s, 90s to like that was just normal language and I didn't even think anything of it. And so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll write the first, I'll read the first parts. And so it says, did you see that? He didn't make one shot. He is such a fag. 
Honestly, I don't even know what he's doing here. Let him play the flute or something. I'm sure he'd like that. The whole chain change room bursts out in laughter. And then, okay, gents, let's get going, yells our teacher. Thank God, I need to get out of here. So why did you start the paper off with that? Uh, those lines? So for me, that opening vignette, I believe really represents the context of not only what students of the LGBTQ community go through, but also the representation of the teacher in that scenario as well, is how sometimes, unfortunately, in the past and even now, some teachers do decide to take more passive approaches to dealing with homophobic attitudes. So some of the key things that I very much like to mention is the fact that a lot of times these folks that are part of the LGBTQ community go through things that not a lot of other people will. So I know in the paper itself, it's mentioning the fact that three quarters of LGBTQ students and 95% of them feel unsafe in school in some sort of capacity. I don't think a lot of other folks would understand on how prevalent they feel and unsafe in that sort of idea. Another piece I always like to highlight is the idea of compulsory heterosexuality, which basically means that it's you should be straight. It's as simple as that. And that's coming from Landy and Ling, uh, Lingheed and Larson as well. And it really, really stands out to me in the fact of this is what's really happening in the real world. The key thing that I mentioned as well is also the fact that passive teaching really was a part of the physical education context as well. That a lot of times teachers were either uncomfortable dealing with the subject matter or again have some uh, passive beliefs or even some maybe religious beliefs that allow them to maybe not feel uh, able to correct some of the mistakes that these students are making. Yeah, and I know we'll probably get into this or it's in the paper, but that passive teaching is, is really big that I saw. And, you know, even people or even teachers who identify as LGBTQ, you know, they still have a kind of a double-edged sword of if they're going to address this or not. So we'll get into that. But, um, you know, I taught in New York for a while and I know in New York, there's a, there's like a specific school for uh, people who are oriented or want to be, in like an LGBTQ community. Um, you know, if you're in some Bible Belt schools in the US <laughs> that might not be as, as prevalent. Um, so what's it like for a student who identifies as LGBTQ in the area where you did this research? Absolutely. So this research happened in Ontario, Canada, and particularly more in southern Ontario. And there are parts that are very progressive. So looking at the Toronto area, for example, where there are schools that have absolutely no problem having students. But then, as you mentioned, there are areas, uh, especially some, some even in southern Ontario, that still have that Bible Belt mentality and the fact that you should be cured rather than actually being who you are. So in regards to what they're facing in this area, especially since the election and uh, regarding the new uh, conservative party that has been elected there's been a lot of uh issues going on in regards to watered down curriculum and also the sense of actually working through the opt-out process where if uh let's say a parent is uncomfortable with LGBTQ plus teachings being put in the health and physical education curriculum, they can actually opt out of that process. So for myself, and I'm sure students that do identify, that is something that really would be this really difficult for me because I'm like, why is this unfair that I can't 
be represented in school, but then a classic heteronormative belief can. Mm -hmm. So again, there's a lot of things going on in regards to focusing on traditional family values, in a sense, and that we are trying to protect the traditional family values. But all families should be considered equal in that regard. So I think it's really important for all of Ontario to recognize that, and even not just Ontario, but the global context as well. Yeah, absolutely. Can you, um, can you talk about the research that's shown support for LGBTQ students in health and physical education? Absolutely. I'll pass that along to uh, Tim. Thank you, Colin. Um, so I guess there's probably quite a lot to suggest that we should support LGBTQ students in HMP. I mean, of course we should, uh, but there's uh, quite a lot of writing out there in terms of ad advocacy papers, conceptual analysis, theoretical insights, and that sort of thing. Um, these have been helpful as calls to action, I suppose, to help us understand the basis for advocating and engaging in activism for LGBTQ students' experiences in classes. But in, when we were looking, we found less in terms of empirical research to help shed light on what we can and or should be doing to support LGBTQ students in schools. So um, there's very little to help us understand specifically types of strategies that could or should be used, how and or why they might be effective and so on. And I think this was supported in the lit review in PESP that you were part of, Risto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. with Dylan and Sarah and Carrie, um, that there's very little data to help us understand specifically what we are or can or should be doing. Uh, we found two papers that did provide data on approaches that pre-service teachers learned about or were exposed to in health and physical education, teacher education. Uh, one was conducted by um, colleagues at the University of Toronto here in Ontario uh, they described a performed ethnography that they developed where montages of LGBTQ students' experiences of H and PE were presented to pre-service teachers. They then critiqued or deconstructed what was going on in H and PE classes and thought about things that they could do to disrupt that typical experience and advocate for LGBTQ students. Uh, in a similar approach, Devis Devis and colleagues in Spain used pedagogical cases that were grounded in queer inclusive pedagogy. So think about language used, injustices, confronted or challenged, binary and or heteronormative practices that were disrupted. And I think about like partner dances, for example, instead mm -hmm. of using male, female, have partner A, partner B. Uh, and those were used to help pre-service teachers reflect on what was happening, how accepting they were of those scenarios or um, how challenged they were about those. Uh, they were concerned mostly with responses to trans students, but we could think about how we might apply that uh, practice to think about LGBTQ students more broadly. Um, beyond those two papers and some generic forms of inclusive practice that many of us are likely using or engaging in, I think of like maximum participation, challenging injustices, non-binary thinking, language choice and use and so on, uh, very little to help us understand specifically what pre-service teachers could or should or might be learning about to support how they taught LGBTQ students in HMPE. Uh, but I will say that while we were preparing the manuscript, there were a couple of really timely publications that do extend this. So um, our papers, I guess, sort of came out simultaneously. So I think about the special issue in 
PESP on equity and diversity that provided a little bit more insight about that. And also the two um, A to Z of social justice education papers that were published in JOPID recently mm-hmm. that have uh, certainly added to that. And I think if we were doing writing about this now, those certainly would have been included and we could have written a little bit more about that. Yeah. And I, I found it interesting talking with uh, Dylan Landy and understanding that his dissertation is probably the only if you know one of the only ones that actually talked to students in lgbtq um you know in in the high school setting and that has been a big barrier in really understanding the research we've been doing research with how do you remember high school or how do you Mm -hmm. you know do that instead of talking to them and i think this is getting closer and closer to that where we're talking to pre-service teachers in in your study so can you tell me a little bit about the methods that you used in the study? Like who was in the study where, I mean, it was in Ontario um, area, but, and what did you, what did you do in the study in general? Absolutely. So our, in our study, we had uh, four pre-service teachers who had a teachable subject in health and physical education. Uh, throughout the paper, you'll see that they are using pseudonyms for that. And these are students that have either just graduated or will probably be graduating this coming year, actually. So again, they're coming right in the time where it's great to see that a lot of the folks that were in this study were quite um, open to the idea of the study and really wanting to move forward with uh, in, uh, implementing inclusive practices. Um, as you mentioned, it's located in Ontario, Canada. And what did we do is, so we actually, obviously it was a qualitative-based research project, and we uh, decided to do uh, three semi-structured interviews in which it would be a structured in a past, present, and future model. So the past was going to be looking at specifically what happened in their, um, uh, let's say, elementary and secondary school experiences. And then moving forward, the uh, the, uh, past, present is going to be obviously what they're going through in their in their pre-service education, as well as their undergraduate careers and how that influenced their um, pedagogy. And then moving uh, into the future is what they would do to basically uh, include inclusive practices, specifically looking towards LGBTQ and uh, further marginalized communities. So how open were the four participants to the study? I mean, I read in the lit review, you, you talked a lot about how this may be like a quote, difficult topic to di- discuss for some pre-service teachers. So were, were those four uh, participants really open? So uh, based on from what I saw, I like to call it a mixed bag in the sense that there were uh, two that were very, very open with what they were able to speak about. I know that one particularly actually had um, uh, LGBTQ um, members of the family or uh, close friends who were part of the LGBTQ. So for uh, her, she had absolutely no problem discussing the subject matter. Whereas interestingly enough, uh, the uh, three male participants that I had, I did have a little bit more apprehension to discussing some subjects. But again, it was nice to see that after the first interview, for example, that they would uh, open up a little bit more and discuss more uh, in depth than sometimes a little bit more challenging subject matter. Um, From what I saw, it was very nice to see an opening up, but I wouldn't say that they were going to be totally open all the time. Mm -hmm. So 
go into the results and discussion section, you present the results in two themes. Number one was influence of beliefs shaped by prior experiences as school students. And the second one is influence of beliefs shaped by experiences as pre-service health and physical education teachers. So um, can you uh, take us through those? Absolutely. I'll let uh, Dr. Fletcher take that one. Um, thanks, Colin. By the way, that's maybe the first time Colin's ever called me Dr. Fletcher, just for uh, the record. True. I was, was going to say, I was going to say, I'm like, are you Dr. Fletcher? <laughs> no, I do not. I don't think I've ever insisted that I be called that. So uh, <laughs> oh, well, uh, now we have no, it on the podcast. So yes, please go. note that, listeners. Uh, uh, I'll start off and then uh, and then I'll let Colin add um, any details and, and things uh, because this was really his his project. Um, I think with both of those themes, like we were using the themes uh, to reflect the past, present, future uh, approach that that guided the data collection. Um, so we're thinking about how prior experiences and experiences as pre-service teachers shape how they're thinking about the future um, as practicing teachers. But we were both really struck by the influence of informal learning experiences that took mm -hmm. place both outside of school and or outside of the teacher education program. Uh, so participants referred quite a lot to things that they'd learned or were exposed to in situations with families or friends or values that were shared by families or friends or that were learned through family relationships, friendships and that sort of thing. Um, most participants seem accepting overall of members of the LGBTQ community and um, Colin can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any self-identified as a member of uh, that community specifically. Um, even though they were accepting, there were some instances of prejudice, uh, for example, in using preferred pronouns and those sorts of things. I think one of the participants said, well, these people are going too far in demanding that they be called whatever um and so we we noted that as um something that was quite prejudicial and when we looked at the background of the participant that who said that we noticed some other things um that sort of supported that opinion um others spoke of for example attending pride parade in toronto or harassment experienced by uh, friends siblings and so on and those experiences really shaping their beliefs um about um advocacy, inclusion, and that sort of thing. Uh, when participants did refer to formal learning situations in both school and in pre-service teacher education, they tended to focus on things that were not done rather than those that were done or those that were done particularly well. And I don't think there were any, interested, uh, any instances of things that sort of stood out. Yes, definitely I will be using that. Um, so when they spoke about their teachers, um, it was in terms of showing apathy, avoidance or ignorance, um, sort of, you know, sweeping something under the rug in many situations. And I mean, the, the quote at the start of the paper from uh, Colin or the vignette from Colin uh, is reflective of that type of thing. Um, when they spoke about teacher educators, um, they didn't really speak about teacher educators. Um, but the syllabi analysis that Colin conducted showed few, if any, specific references to LGBTQ issues in terms of topics, readings, course objectives, and so on, at least specifically. 
Uh, so in sum, I think we were concerned about what participants were telling us about their learning about how to teach LGBTQ students in HMPE. Um, while personal experiences inform many of our practices, regardless of what those are, we I don't think it's um, it's enough to rely on such a broad array of experiences that aren't grounded in any evidence as being sufficient to disrupt homophobia in classrooms um, and provide LGBTQ students with affirming, supportive and meaningful experiences or to instill homo anti-homophobic attitudes and practices in the uh, pedagogical repertoires of teachers. Colin, did you want to add anything um, about the, the findings or the results there? Yeah, the one thing that I very much wanted to highlight was the fact that, again, Tim mentioned that the personal experiences very much informed uh, how these uh, pre-service teachers were going to incorporate their pedagogy into the classroom. However, that's not a formal way of doing things by any means. And I was very hopeful to hear that they had heard of experiences from either the pre-service education or even their undergraduate career. And even through the syllabi analysis, the fact that there was very little to none that were showing LGBTQ even listed in the syllabi was something that really struck me, especially considering the fact that the uh, universities are always uh, praising the fact that they're being inclusive and that they're allowing uh, anybody to be incorporated into their learning, but allowing it to be meaningful and uh, actually specific to the LGBTQ community, I think would really help regardless of any free service teacher to be able to counter anti-homophobic beliefs or homophobic beliefs, I should say. Yeah, I think uh, going off the syllabi analysis, I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't think you'd find the word in my course syllabus. I, I address it and we have some case studies that we go over. We, um, you know, have, when we talk about fitness testing, we talk about how does this, uh, how does fitness testing work and people who are not gender binary and that we have that analysis, but it's not in my syllabus. And I'm wondering, and I would think that the syllabus analysis is very accurate. I don't think if it's in the syllabus, it's probably not being covered, but you know, what do you what do you say to that? Like, is that something that you feel like should be overtly stated in a syllabus or? Yeah, uh, in my belief, I truly believe it should be overtly put in because, again, it's showcasing that the professor or instructor or whoever you want to call it is willing and open to discuss these issues. I think that would be innately important. Uh, furthermore, I think that they need to uh, show that the students can actually learn that material and that the students can be like, oh, finally, because I know one of the uh, results was the fact that um, uh, one of the participants would have felt so much more secure and felt that their um, uh, um, friends would have felt more secure if there were actually teachings, even if it was just mentioned they would have felt that they were being accepted and that they felt that their, this information was going to be covered and that they would feel that they're included in the whole uh, grand scheme of things. So I firmly believe that sometimes you have to take that step and take that risk and include that regardless of possible backlash from administration or whatever the logic may yeah. be. Yeah, and I think the way you just previously brought this up was universities are saying that they're this inclusive space but then we're not actually putting that stuff where 
we are showing what our classes are about. So I guess a challenge to the peak community out there to, you know, re-review that syllabus before you launch it or, you know, when you're reviewing it and look at it, are you, are you covering this stuff? So if I might add something quickly, Risto as well, um, from what I understand, I think course syllabi uh, outlines, whatever you want to call them, are legally binding documents. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you state that you're covering something, you're expected to, to cover that. Um, and so by not including it, you're probably um, allowing yourself an, an easy out mm-hmm. to, to not talk about these yeah. issues, whether it's about the LGBTQ community, whether it's about racism, um, whatever it might be. So by stating things explicitly in a course outline, I guess you're holding yourself accountable yeah. um, to yourself and to your students, to your administration, that, that you will be addressing these issues. Um, so it's it's something to think about, certainly. Yeah, and if nobody puts it on and they still cover it, then looking into those classes, you look at, oh, none of my colleagues are doing this, so why should I put it on? Right. Mm-hmm. So it continues. So do you do you think that the personal experiences uh, in the paper you talked about summer camp or after school programs or having a friend or a, f- a family friend or something who's trans or LGBTQ or um, you know are those more powerful in changing opinions than any class that we can teach about the topic? Uh, that's an excellent question. I know that uh, personal experiences for myself have sometimes I. Uh, led me to challenge what has happened in formal classrooms. However, formal classrooms are based on the best research available. So I don't believe that uh, they should just be thrown away and that personal experiences should run rampant. I think it's a good balance point where I believe that uh, they should actually allow um, for uh, students to maybe work through case studies based on personal experiences. I know that was very effective in my teacher education was allowing this to actually be deconstructed through an academic lens because sometimes personal experiences can lead to biases that aren't helpful. So I think that's a very important thing to consider is that sometimes you need to incorporate these personal experiences, but allow them to be deconstructed in a way that are helpful. Yeah. And, and I would agree with that. I think the formal classes are important. That's, that's where I really changed a lot. It was personal experiences, seeing that, but then also having classes for me at, at teacher's college and really like really pushing my my thinking and then coming back into the community that I grew up in and realizing, oh, I need to, I need to really like reconsider how I'm, how I'm thinking about things. So I think the, the personal experiences are one thing, but I would agree that having these informal classes like in our, in our PEAT programs is super important. So um, I'll move over to the last two questions in the conclusion part. Um, you bring up some of the suggestions on how to better prepare pre-service teachers. Uh, you, you noted the activist approach. Um, can you explain some of these and why you think they would work for pre-service teachers? Absolutely. So uh, the activist approach, I feel, is super important in regards to uh, 
teachers taking that risk and actually deciding to be like, you know what, even if it's a simple action of putting up the rainbow flag in your classroom or up on the door and showing that you're an activist and willing to listen to these students is very important and willing to include these students. But then I would say even taking further risks for actually whenever you do hear a homophobic slur in the classroom of actually taking that risk and realizing that, you know what, what happens if I was gay? How would you feel about making that uh, assumption and using those words, right? Because I feel that sometimes teachers are apprehensive because of what will happen to them. But sometimes you have to think about the student just as much as yourself. So I feel that that's one opportunity is using something like the activist approach. I also feel that meaningful uh, professional development would be very helpful for these students. I know that in regards to professional development that I've gone through as a teacher, a lot of times it's going more over the curricular aspects, but then they'll never delve deep into personal experiences or giving teachers the ability to be like, hey, this is what happened in my classroom, how would you deal with it? And opening it up to a community that would be allowing for a vast majority of input and then coming to affirm a decision as well. So meaningful, purposeful, a professional development would be something that would be very helpful moving forward as well. I also think that uh, using uh, pronouns that are helpful and also actually used for those students is really uh, helpful for me, especially in my last LTO. There was a majority of students that actually were either identified as LGBTQ or actually wanted to be referred to as this name, but at home they were referred to as another name. And that's such a delicate balance of making sure that when you're contacting the parent that, hey, this is what's actually happening. And then also making sure that you're not stepping over the students' rights as well. Yeah. So what do you what do you recommend for like using pronouns and things like this or preferred pronouns? Do you think that the professor should start off with that just by putting putting that on the first day or on their email sign off or something like that? Are those kind of like covert flags or something like that that you you would look at? Like, do you look at an email from a person that? doesn't have pronouns differently than a person that does? Uh, for me, whenever I see, especially, for example, the vice principal, for example, was to actually use that as a part of their um, email, I look upon them in a brighter light. I look at them as being someone that is an advocate and somebody that does care for these students. I, I wouldn't say that I look down on anybody that doesn't because again, tradition is a very powerful thing. And sometimes this isn't even something that has been thought about. So mm -hmm. I think again, allowing uh, people to see and implement strategies that they haven't even thought about and challenging that thinking and reflecting on their thinking will be very important. Um, I feel that that's a good start, but I also feel that there are other ways to do, uh, to um, help and uh, incorporate things better. I think it's a good start, but we can be more aggressive per se, I think too. Yeah. So let's leave off on a really tough and big question. Uh, <laughs> what is your hope for the future of HPE? Uh, personally, uh, my hope for health and physical education would be to be inclusive for all. I know that is a grand statement, but the key thing is, is that for me, I was very lucky that I was from an inclusive school, that there wasn't much homophobia going on. However, even at an inclusive school, that vignette was uh, 
taken almost word for word for what I faced. So again, I think it's so important that health and physical education takes steps to very much include all members of society, if that's sexuality, race, ethnicity, and so on. And again, considering those intersectionality elements as well, I think would be very important moving forward. Um, I think that as a whole, we need to very much challenge tradition in health and physical education as well. Again, using sports as the only way to teach phys ed, I don't think is the way to move forward if we're implementing uh, teaching games for understanding, using a, a teaching a personal and social responsibility. I think especially for the context that we're speaking here, TPSR would be very helpful in ensuring that these students are feel included and that other students realize that we do take this seriously. Um, that I mean, though, that's a great, great way to end. Tim, do you have anything to add or, or um, on what you look at the hope for the future of HPE? Um, I think I'd like to see HMP really live up to its potential to be a site for democratic transformation, um, which means that teachers will be committed to listening to individual students' reports of their experiences and not just asking about, how your team did on the weekend, but experiences mm -hmm. outside of school related to their lives um, within reason and um, if students want to talk about those things with a teacher. Because a lot of health and phys ed teachers have a very close relationship and quite a different relationship to um, that they have with many other teachers. Um, so being highly attuned to what's going on inside and outside of the classrooms, in their communities, at home and so on. I think many teachers are doing a really good job at this, uh, but I think we can probably agree that we can be doing better on the whole. Um, I'd, I'd really like to see teachers continue to be advocates for their students um, and to help them enter and make the most of their movement playgrounds, I think, as Scott Kretschmer would say. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a nice note to end on, and I would, I would agree that there is room for improvement, and there are definitely people who are doing that really, really good work. Um, so thank you both for your time. I, I love this read. It was really good. Um, I think you bring up a lot of points about, um, you know, that really made me reconsider how I teach, what's included in my syllabus, how am I approaching these topics? Am I as open and available as I think I am to the outside? Um, so we'll link to the article. Um, so we'll have a full citation there in the comments section. and. Uh, that's all we got. If you have not yet, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a PE professor and you're using these in your classes, just drop me a quick email. And um, if you have any suggestions on what we're missing um, on this podcast, let us know. So thanks, Tim. Thanks, Colin. Really appreciate it.